Set your COM ports on fun because we're exploring the world of multiplayer modeming and message bases this week on Square Waves FM. Hello there, listeners. Hello, fellow squares. Uh, wishing you very well on this lovely Saturday morning. Um, thanks a lot for joining us. Uh, this is Brian here, coming to you live from uh, the internet. I guess not live by the time you hear it. And uh, joining me today is my very good buddy. Hi, I'm Chris, and uh, I'm coming to you live over the telephone. And uh, very beautiful day out here, too. How are you, Brian? I'm doing terrific. I really can't complain. Although my poor my poor missus is having a tough one with uh, a sore back today. But uh, nothing Dr. Brian can't massage out. Uh, how's everything with you? I'm pretty good. It's uh, It's been really, really warm here and unfortunately very, very icy. So there's a lot of people with, yeah, back problems, slip discs, that kind of stuff. And uh, my partner had a pretty, pretty big wipeout on the uh, ice uh, a couple of days ago. So I think our butt's recovering from that still. Oh, sorry to hear. Take good care yeah. of our butt for me, will you? Uh, yeah, um, Dr. Chris will <laughs> do a similar butt doctoring job. That sounds good to me. <laughs> Say no more. <laughs> Glad to hear it. All right. Well, um, we've had a, a lovely response from uh, several of our good buddies and some new people on Twitter. Uh, we sure do appreciate that. Uh, we would love to uh, address some of those. Um, first of all, we have a uh, a bit of a finger wag, which I believe we can uh, we can respond to to some degree thanks to something you've been up to this week, Chris. Um, trolls, our good buddy Trolls. Um, ah. lambastes us uh, officially wow. for not having finished the Monkey Island games, something that we knew was coming from <laughs> somewhere or from someone. And so, to be honest, I'm not at all. I'm not at all shocked that it came from trolls. I know he's not exactly the reserve type, is he? <laughs> what, what, I'm, I'm assuming that this came with a, you know, a small amount of swearing, etc. Or, or was this was this cleaned up a little bit? He showed phenomenal restraint. I, I can only imagine he was wearing some kind of leather suit, holding a whip or something aggressive. At the same time, I can time. imagine. I have I have the feeling that trolls, you know, it's a super tall guy. Or hi, trolls. I'm having the feeling that you're the super tall guy who's, you know, is able to, uh, you know churn out lots of social media stuff during the week and games and then on your weekends you don your uh, bdsm suit and hit the hardcore heavy metal bars so i uh no i appreciate the amount of restraint you've given us in, <laughs> in okay. lambasting me but i can i can speak to that now i can i can honestly say that i have now finished monkey island one Hooray. um yeah and um and i got called out from my partner for cheating um <laughs> i uh i last week I said I don't cheat playing games, which is generally true. And then my partner reminded me that the specifics of it are that I do cheat occasionally, um, but not very often. So I, I got her to look up a couple of uh, walkthroughs and I had to twice. I had to cheat through puzzles in Monkey Island 1. Um, and uh, unfortunately, the one that was blocking me for the last month or so uh, was really simple and stupid. And, and I feel dumb for not figuring it out earlier. Um, for anybody wondering, it was the puzzle where you need to get the uh, navigator's head. By the way, Brian, have you have you how far have you played into Monkey Island One? So it's been quite some time. I sort of recall getting on a ship with the three roustabout guys okay. and going to yep. some other island, and right. I think I remember a humongous tiki, tiki head or something, and exploring the island and monkeys and That's stuff right, like the, that. The huge monkey head. Yeah. Is that close to the end at all? 
Uh, yeah, I would say you were probably within an hour of the ending. Oh um, man, okay, well, that's, yeah, that's no, about no, where I got stuck. Close. Could very well have been yeah. the same the same puzzle you were on. <laughs> My problem was um, the puzzle for, for any of our adventure gamer listeners uh, involved a uh, you need to go into this kind of deep underground realm, which is kind of like the River Styx, awash with blood, and um, find you know ghost pirate Lechuk deep deep underground uh, underneath the ocean. Um, but you, it's, it's kind of interesting. It's actually a randomly generated maze, which I really appreciate, or at least procedure, somewhat procedurally generated. Somebody can correct me on that. Really? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's actually kind of cool. Um, when you go down into the maze, uh, each room is randomly populated or pretend, potentially, potentially they're just several different kinds of rooms that they cycle through, but whatever it is. Um, there's absolutely no way to solve the maze without having this, um, mag- you know, basically I'm going to spoil, spoiler alert, um, you need to have this uh, headless navigator who points the right direction. And it's a, a fantastic puzzle. It kind of um, has this very Ron Gilbert feel to it. Um, and I couldn't find the damn navigator's head. And the solution turned out to be really, really simple. Um, basically, the solution was try to give every single one of your Bringing inventory items to the uh, to the cannibals who live on the island, and eventually one of those will work. Um, oh, that's, that's yeah, not a was, great puzzle, is it? Do you actually literally have to puzzle. do you have to show them every single one, offer them every single one, and then it triggers it? Uh, no, there was some logic to it. I think if you knew ahead of time that one, you're basically holding a piece of paper that has a solution, um, but the problem with it is the hint to which inventory item to give them. Uh, is only given once and very, very quickly in dialogue with them. Um, and at some point you're frozen out of dialogue with these um, three characters, so you can't get that hint if you missed it the first time. Mm. Um, yeah, so basically, and I missed the hint. I was probably clicking through dialogue a little too quickly, um, or I wasn't, you know, scrutinizing each individual word, and I missed that. So it basically meant that um, I, I literally tried every single inventory item on each other, and then at some point that didn't work, and I said, "Okay, I need a hint." So um, my girlfriend looked it up, and uh, yeah, sure enough, is you give this pamphlet to the or a leaflet, uh, I guess, to the um, these three cannibals, and they say, "Oh, well, that's exactly what we needed. Thank you so much. Here's the navigator's head. Be on your way." Um, <laughs> and I was literally stuck there for a month trying to figure this out. You know, once once every couple of days. Oh, ouch! Um, that uh, I think that's something that uh, Lucas Arts kind of hammered out into a proper strategy later on it usually they would give Absolutely. you some sort of a subtle hint through a pun or some kind of a turn of exactly. phrase and even if it was kind of obtuse like when you either solved it by thinking about it or by accident it sort of in right. retrospect became clear exactly yeah and this th- this is definitely has that feeling it's like oh, okay that was a, a little bit too distant in terms of um giving the player enough cues but i'm not complaining it's entirely my own entirely my own fault and it gave me the opportunity to say, hey, this is, you know, old school adventuring. I'm not going to solve this puzzle until I figure it out. And, you know, I think a month was long enough to wait before I, I uh, had somebody help me cheat. It's about 29 <laughs> and two thirds of a day lo- uh, longer than I would have waited. <laughs> well, that, that you're, I appreciate the even one day of restraint. That's a lot. <laughs> well, that's good. So what you... Have you been, uh, oh. Sorry, what have you been uh, playing lately? Um, I played, I played some good stuff this week. Um, I have... Oh, wait. 
are we? I I just realized. Did are we supposed to respond to Joe's? Uh, oh my uh, goodness! Uh, voicemail. I do yeah. believe we should do that. Our our very I, good buddy apologies. Joe Mastriani from the uh, Upper Memory Block podcast, a podcast we know very well and love. Um, he was kind enough to send us a voicemail by email, and uh, we uh, invite you all to uh, do the same. You can reach us at squarefm at demodulated.com if you'd like to ask a question of us, um, either by text or uh, record an MP3 and send it over to us. So let's play Joe's uh, voicemail. Thanks again, Joe. Hey guys, Joe here from the uh, the UMB cast. Uh, listened to the first episode, thought it was really, really, really great. Uh, and uh, you guys brought up uh, Face Track No IR, and uh, I just wanted to say a little bit more about it because I'm actually really quite enjoying it. Uh, I started using Face Track No IR a little while ago, just uh, just like you you guys did with uh, you know just a webcam, and it kind of tracks your eyes and your nose, kind of that area. And uh, yeah, not super reliable and I did, did a bit more uh, research and I ended up going with this solution that still uses face track no IR as uh, as the software end of things but uh, I ordered this thing called a Dellen clip from uh, from the UK and it's basically uh, three infrared lights on a little mounting frame that you I basically electrical taped it to the side of my uh, my headset. And um, I also bought a PS3i camera because it runs at 120 hertz. I think I got the PS3i camera for like 15 bucks, and the Dellen clip was like 30 or 40 bucks, something like that. And um, you know, you have to do a bit of surgery on the PS3i camera. You kind of pop it open, you pull out the infrared filter that's inside the lens assembly, and then you replace uh, that filter with actually a piece of uh, in the inside of a floppy disk, the actual like uh, data surface of a three and a half inch floppy disk and uh by doing that it actually just tracks the three points on the uh on the dellen clip and it creates for about maybe a grand total investment of sixty dollars um you know a, a very stable very reliable uh head tracker and uh, i've been using it with elite dangerous and uh and it's really really great and um yeah, I, I, I can't help but, but recommend it. So, uh, again, really enjoyed the first episode. I hope you guys keep it up, and um, thanks. All right. Perfect. So, um, thank you so much, Joe, for this terrific uh, for the, this terrific voicemail. Um, some really cool comments in there. You uh, have the true hacker spirit, and I appreciate that very much. Um, <laughs> so, I talked a little bit last episode about my experiences with Elite Dangerous, and uh, which was like a space simulator game that takes place in the cockpit. And I talked a little bit about the uh, uh, the the uh, head tracking. A free open source solution, FaceTrack No IR, that uh, I used with my cheapo webcam. So thank you very much, Joe, for uh, clarifying some uh, uh, ways to tweak the precision of that a little bit. It sounded like it was a bit of a, a hands-on ordeal, um, but uh, in the end, probably a third the price or maybe less than purchasing a commercial head tracking solution. So that's a really cool one. We greatly appreciate the comment. Thanks a bunch for, uh, for uh, sending that in. Yeah, that's fantastic, Joe. I'm I'm so impressed that uh, I had no idea you were kind of a hardware hacker type. I I assumed you know I didn't even realize that you could build uh, you know your own uh, DIY device in order to do the head tracking stuff. And um, as I mentioned earlier, I'm fairly new to the idea of head tracking. Um, I actually heard about it um, through a completely unrelated source. Um, I, I assume Joe. 
um, and you too, Brian, probably came across it um, researching information for uh, um, playing space flight, uh, space sim games. Um, is that true, or did yeah, you come across I, it in another route? I think I first heard about it um, in relation to Microsoft Flight Simulator and to some combat flight simulators, and then there's a, a, a trucking simulator that I enjoy called Euro Truck Simulator, and that oh, supports man, it as well. Oh, man, i got to play that someday. I heard Euro Truck Simulator is amazing. It's a whole lot of fun. It's just like pure serenity. The, the, the thing that most of us <laughs> look forward to least of all in our days is driving and having to negotiate around traffic and stuff like that and getting stuck on a highway for hours <laughs> on end. But when you don't have to do it, when you get to do it, it's uh, like total, total serenity. It's very, very enjoyable. I find that absolutely amazing. I, I, I think it was last year sometime, um, there was a guy who would um, twitch his uh, Euro Truck Simulator uh, drives once a night and uh, he was on my Twitter feed back then, and uh, I couldn't believe how mesmerizing it was just to watch this guy driving around. And uh, <laughs> I would sit there for, you know, 45 minutes uh, just listening to him, you know, basically talking to himself while he's driving. And uh, I thought it was just fantastic. <laughs> well, I tried my cheapo uh, webcam-based head tracking with that game only once. Uh, that's a game where right. it has just a great sense of... Uh, of linearity and continuity and so you really want to avoid making any mistakes ever because you literally pay for it if you damage <laughs> your truck or your cargo you lose money on the delivery and you have to pay to fix your truck and so gotcha. my i don't know if i was playing when the light was a little low or what but my uh my vision kept snapping like dramatically to the left and right a whole bunch and I think I just tapped my, my uh, gamepad a little bit too much to one direction because suddenly my whole truck tilted over and I started skidding <laughs> along one of the doors. And uh, that was probably the worst catastrophe I've had in that game. And so I, I've Well been, done. Gail, yeah, thank you. So I've, I've really been uh, dreading having to open that up again to deal with the consequences. <laughs> That's awesome. I, oh, yeah, to, to get myself back on track. Um, I actually came across the head tracking software... Um, that you mentioned uh, when it was a, a friend of my mother's who had um, uh, multiple sclerosis that had become quite degenerative over the years. Mm. And um, yeah, it was, it was ver becoming a very difficult thing. And she was a huge Scrabble uh, fan. And one of the things she loved to do is play online Scrabble. Um, but her hand movements had degenerated to the point where she wasn't able to use the mouse anymore. And, uh, and unfortunately you know, for her, um, you know, because her mobility was so limited, um, she wasn't able to, you know, physically play Scrabble itself, and she was losing the ability to play it with a mouse. So we ended up looking up um, NoIR um, to find uh, head tracking solutions for it. I just, the last episode had slipped my mind, and I forgot about this. This was, you know, quite some time ago. Um, and uh, we, yeah, we tracked down some, in, in um, there were several kinds of software out there. Some of them were eye tracking, some of them were face tracking. Um, and we actually ended up coming down with one that worked quite well in terms of um, she ended up in the end um, wearing this kind of headband thing and uh, it would project a tiny little pinpoint of light off of an LED and um, it worked as a mouse cursor for her basically. And so she was able to tap with her right hand because tapping still worked okay. Um, but the um, uh, webcam would follow the little LED light coming off of her headband. That's and, really uh, something. So I guess the controls in her neck were uh, more precise than those in her hand. Ex exactly, yeah. She she had a little bit of probability, uh, mobility problems with her neck, but in general it was much, much, much better than uh, with her hands. And um, if I remember correctly, uh, in general, I think that's kind of how uh, 
multiple, multiple sclerosis works is it tends to uh, degenerate the appendages uh, a lot sooner than the other parts of your core body. So yeah, anyway, funny related story. I just thought it was really excellent that we uh, came <laughs> came up with the same software in the end. Oh, that's terrific. I, I, I remember um, Valve talking a little bit about their uh, research with virtual reality and augmented reality and uh, right. trying to solve the problem of how do you control your avatar when you can't necessarily see your hands. And uh, yeah. they were experimenting oh, wow. with stuff like that. I remember them also saying that they spent a long time investigating a tongue controller where you would have, oh. I don't know what, you would have to put <laughs> something in your mouth, like a hose or something. I don't know. But right. they took it pretty seriously because right. it's a very precise muscle, apparently. Absolutely. Yeah. It's funny. Um, this is not to, not to, de um, what's the word, get us to, oops, I think I just dropped my recording device. Let's see if it's still recording. Um, yeah, we're still cool. Yeah. Cool. Um, <laughs> Um, it reminds me of this science fiction book. I don't know if you read it or if anybody, any of our listeners have read it. There's this amazing, amazing, uh, classic work of science fiction called, uh, the forever war by Joel Haldeman. And, um, actually, uh, it's, it's a fantastic book. Yeah. I really highly recommend it. It's basically, um, Vietnam, his experience of Vietnam retold as a science fiction story. Um, but, um, there's one fantastic part of the book, which is they get into these fighting suits they call Waldos. Um, and the fighting suits have a helmet on it that actually has, um, mouth controls, uh, basically for, for all sorts of things. And, uh, it was the only time I've ever seen that actually adequate, adequately explained in a science fiction book, his like descriptions of the mouth controls with your tongue. So he, I think he says like, I tongued lo I tongued my right tooth and it, you know, boosted my helmets, uh, range up to log six, uh, infrared, et cetera, et cetera. And I was just like, oh man, that's so cool. That is cool. So, you know, thank you Google for, you know, um, fast forwarding us into the horrible future. Well, where we're going to be fighting aliens on another planet. That's yeah, yeah. Thanks a bunch, Google. <laughs> so, um, did I say Google? I meant valve. I, I like oh, literally... <laughs> the machine i literally conflate valve and google these days they're both sources of evil on my end wow sure sure <laughs> <laughs> um so before i talk too much by the way about what i uh, uh what i played this week i wanted to thank uh, anatoly for um correcting us um and clarifying that both uh lands of lore and eye of the beholder were both westwood games it's something that i kind of suspected but uh, i started to doubt Whoa, it when you really? had some doubt yeah, Holy yeah. Holy cow. I, I always thought Eye of the Beholder was an SSI game. I guess not. I'm, I'm, I know they had a lot I'm of RPG stuff. And appalled. So, uh, my, I, apo my apologies, Anatoly. I, um, I, I, I failed you. I failed all of our uh, DOS gaming listeners. That's mm, terrible. That's, it's big shoes to fill to try to uh, amass the same quantity of knowledge about the, that era as our good buddy, DOS Nostalgic <laughs> Anatoly. So let's that's not kick ourselves true. too hard. Yeah, and, and I'm, used to, I'm used to getting lambasted for... Um, you know, confusing Windows and DOS games all the time. So that's uh, that's of no surprise to me that I that I wow. Well, I I feel I feel schooled. That's great. Thank you so much, Anatoly, and that makes me much happier that I know it's a Westwood game because that you know um, explains a lot of the similarities between Lands of Lore and uh, the A and D and D cousin it it shares uh, room with. I suppose so. Yeah, SSI had uh, had. Uh, close ties with AD&D as well, didn't they? Licensed products, I think? Yeah, exactly. There were so many SSI games that came out in their Gold Box series um, that, you know, uh, 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 Champions of Kryn um, led... Oh, man, there's there, there's like at least five or six Gold Box games that came out through SSI. 
and uh, they were they were developed internally by SSI, licensed through AD and D. So, wow, um, cool. Uh, I'm I'm actually really shocked, and I should probably clarify that I've actually never finished a single Eye of the Beholder game ever. So, that might explain why I didn't even know it was a Westwood game. It takes some doing, as I recall. I think I remember getting kind of far into the first Eye of the Beholder game until I got to one floor of a dungeon where like you couldn't cast spells or you couldn't rest or something like that. And ah. Then I said, screw it. <laughs> yeah, that, that sounds that sounds familiar. That sounds like my Ultima Underworld experience where I've oh, am I thinking literally of that? tried... What's that, sorry? Maybe I'm thinking of Ultima Underworld. Yeah, it, it could be. Um, Ultima Underworld for me had this problem where... I would get deeper and deeper into the dungeons, and at some point, um, I was just—I I would consistently get screwed. And I—they were always different reasons. Sometimes there were bugs. Sometimes they were um, like the machine would lock up. Other times, um, I had done a quest out of order, and I'd absolutely ruined my reputation with the lizard men. Or, mm-hmm. um, but I—I I literally tried for—I've tw- tried for twenty years to finish Ultima Underworld one, and I've never succeeded. <laughs> no, I watched the ending on YouTube once. It looks bloody hard. So I don't know if oh. I can be bothered. Yeah, exactly, and 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 it's it's such a wonderful game. But anyway, I was wonderful. I should have reminded myself to ask you, um, what have you been playing? Okay, so one thing I have been playing, which uh, I I play at least every six months or so, was Doom. I played the first oh, great. Doom, a whole bunch of it, not all of it. Was it no, I was playing Doom two actually this time. Um, okay, cool. With the GZ Doom source port. And so that has oh. all kinds of fancy features. You can add like particle effects and you can add new textures and 3D models and all this crazy stuff. I don't bother with any of that stuff. All I okay. use it for is to make it 3D accelerated and to play it in widescreen, which is so gorgeous. That's just a an amazing, <laughs> deep, wonderful, beautiful, technological marvel of a game that doesn't really need a whole lot of augmentation to be That's to remain awesome. glorious 20 years later. So, oh, that's that's fantastic. And how did you? Uh, how far did you get into uh, maps? Wise, how far did you get into Doom Two? I think I'm about a third of the way through, or maybe half of the way through. I'm kind of at the areas nice. now. It's, so that Doom Two is the sequel to Doom. It's called Hell on Earth, and so you, uh, a lot of the uh, scenery and the locations are sort of Earth-like, but kind of kind of off-putting. And I don't know whether that was just a stylistic choice or the limitations of their engine and level design right. or what. It's kind of it sort of looks vaguely earth-like with buildings and stuff like that so i got about uh, halfway through where i think the last map i did was called downtown where there's a lot of verticality there's like windows in tall buildings and each of them of course has like a fireball throwing imp in it or uh, you know things that uh throw these slow uh projectiles at you from very far away and so if you're not paying attention (laughs) then something will hit you and you have no idea from where yeah exactly so not only did I phenomenally enjoy Doom, as I always do, one of the best games I've, I will ever play, um, I also had the fantastic pleasure of listening to uh, an interview uh, by J.P. LeBreton of Double Fine. He's interviewing uh, John Romero as he That's... plays the Doom shareware levels and <laughs> talks about level design. And boy, That's was very that funny. I just watched the same thing last night. Oh, I, it was just fantastic. Like... I, having read Masters of Doom now, you sort of wonder whether John Romero got so far with his kind of rock star persona that he just really couldn't have been all that talented of a guy to begin with somehow, even though that book is very clear to say that John Carmack is extremely impressed with John Romero's uh, technological acuity. But uh, 
just hearing him talk about the little details and the design design decisions that he's made in uh, making these little, you know, little entries in some of the walls that are invisible to make sound go through in some areas, but not others, or uh, trying to make exactly. things asymmetrical or making staircases for variety. Like, he is a real master and a real detail-oriented craftsman. Very impressed with this guy. Absolutely. Um, shout out to my friend Doug, friend of the podcast. Um, Doug came by and showed me a couple of episodes that he had recorded. Uh, uh, it's from Double Fine. And um, I was I, I was so impressed. I, okay, so I get a little bit of a story to tell about John Romero, um, if, if, if you don't mind me uh, <laughs> taking over here. Please. What's playing? Okay, you might, you might dig this. I don't know if I've told you this story before. Um, several years ago, I went to the GDC um, at the time, I was just a, a nobody uh, writing uh, articles on the internet that nobody cared about. And um, I showed up at the GDC. I had a ticket. Um, I didn't realize that the first couple of days of GDC, no one's there. Um, if you go on the Monday and Tuesday, um, and I had nothing to do. I, I walked around the IGF, um, but people were still setting up because the big day doesn't start till Wednesday. Um, this was in 2009 or so. And... Um, I was really bored. I had nobody to talk to. I didn't have any friends uh, who were going to the GDC. And I was leaving the building. It was about four o'clock or three o'clock. And um, I see John, John fucking Romero standing at the door. And I, was, I, I just kind of froze. I was just like, oh, well, that's weird. Uh, you know, there's like maybe 200 people in the whole building. And what, what's John Romero doing there? Oh my God. Um, and I, and I panicked. I, I totally panicked. I was, <laughs> I thought, uh, I'm not going to do anything. Wait, I should at least say hi. I'll, I'll, I'll regret this for the rest of my life if I don't say hi. So I walked over and I was like, hi, you're John Romero. And he's like, yep. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he started laughing and, and I just said, Hey, I just wanted to thank you for, you know, pretty much everything you've made. And I started, you know, listing off some of the games that I played, but I had just offhandedly mentioned that I had really loved his uh, work uh, on the Apple IIe. And he's like, Oh my God. He's like, you played my IIe games. And, um, and I said, yeah. And I said, you know, I've, I'm, I'm really jealous because I've always wanted to learn, um, uh, 6502 assembly, uh, assembler and, and actually learn how to build games for the 2A in double high res, etc. And he's like, oh man. And I'll never forget this. I was just like in awe. Imagine, you know, nerdy me standing there, just like looking, looking at John Romero, this guy just, he spent, he, we were standing at the doors and he just told me everything he knew about Apple IIe programming. Oh and man. It was, it was crazy. And, and I was just standing there just listening and listening and listening and listening. And I looked down at my watch and, and I got there around three or four o'clock and it was six thirty. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And John Ribeiro was just, just like telling me everything. And I, and I just realized I'm like, Oh my God, I think I just met somebody who loves games more than me. <laughs> um, <laughs> and he was so kind, so humble and, and such like, just, just wore his heart on his sleeves and, and just said to me like, Oh man, I like, it makes me so happy. You know, I met somebody who actually like dug the Apple IIe and, actually enjoyed games off of it. And, you know, and he told me literally everything he knew about design and, and all that stuff. And we didn't even talk about Doom all that much. He was so excited to talk about the 6502 and uh, all of the crazy um, tricks he used to pull off some pretty insane uh, um, uh, screen refreshes on it, etc. cetera, and, and, and speeds. So, 
Yeah, I have nothing but great things to say about John Romero. And, you know, I've read plenty of things about his ego and, um, you know, what happened with Ion Storm, etc., and his role at id. But honestly, um, everything everything in my soul tells me that this guy is just, just a wonderful guy who really loves games. He loves to make games, he loves to talk about games, and he loves to play them. And uh, so, yeah, there's my little uh, little thing. And it just made me smile. Uh, watching that Double Fine episode yesterday about uh, with, with J.P. LeBreton and um, and it just reminded me like wow this guy just loves games as much as uh, as much as he used to and he's still very very passionate about them. Oh, that's a hell of a story. Thank you for sharing that. Wow, we. Yeah, pretty funny, hey. <laughs> no kidding. Well, I'm I'll be very sure to include a link to the YouTube series in the show notes. Apparently, uh, Double Fine speaks with several. Uh, game designers about a few different games on different platforms, and so I'm very much looking forward to uh, watching those too. But this one with John Romero, I basically just kind of mainlined that right into my vein. I could not stop watching the whole series until it was <laughs> inside of me. So that was yeah. That I can't was I can't wait to watch the uh, rest of it. I only got to see one or two episodes. I think there's four or five or six. Five or six. Yes. Yeah. So I can't wait to see the rest, and I'll I'll probably check in next week or the week after after my friend. Uh, after a friend of the podcast, Doug, has uh, has uh, gotten to show me a little bit more. Right on. Well, thanks, Doug. All right. Yeah, thanks so much. That's awesome. Sorrow, that was... Oh, I don't know how I'm going to top this story now. Um, I'm <laughs> Sorry, playing... I didn't, I didn't mean to steal your space. Go for well, it. Well, uh, I guess I have something almost, moment, almost as momentous to say about this other game that I played called 140. It is oh, a this game... one I don't know. Oh, so it's uh, made by two... Two people, and that may or may not include the musician. I think that does not include the musician. So this okay. this game I was first exposed to when I, uh, for a while, I was uh, I had this membership at a Toronto collaborative workspace called Bento Miso, which is oh, yeah, right. just a magical, wonderful, fantastic place. If you live in Toronto and you're a game developer um, and you're self-employed, there's like no better place to spend your working hours. This is just a That's place fantastic. where extremely, uh, extremely smart... Uh, game developers and uh, web designers and other kind of technology people, but mostly game developers and people working in that industry. They just go to this collaborative workspace, they bring their laptops, they drink free coffee all day and uh, just kind of sit and bask in each other's presence, or if they have a question, they just kind (laughs) of open their mouths and someone invariably knows the answer. So That's awesome. That was a cool place. And so I think it was the second time I had ever been there. The first time I went there was for a lecture by Christine Love about... uh, about narrative uh, narrative design in games. Oh, very cool. And she's a smart cookie. That was a great time. So that convinced me that this was a special place to check out. And so um, since I work Monday to Friday, um, I wanted to show up on a Saturday. And they weren't open on Saturdays at that time. But right. uh, Henry Faber, the proprietor and founder of the place, uh, did me the special favor of uh, opening the place up just for me. And, uh, oh, wow. He kind of showed me around. And I did a couple of hours of work while I was there. And You're so. me. Another one of his buddies came by, and uh, Henry called me over. He's like, Brian, you have to see this. And it was the trailer for this game called 140, 140. Okay. Um, and it, it, the trailer kind of um, alluded to this kind of a platform of uh, geometric shapes and just kind of abstract landscapes, very simple design. And it had gotcha. 
this like uh, chugging kind of techno uh, background music and every single element of the gameplay whenever a platform would move or a door would open or something would become electrified and then become clear right. it was all in perfect timing and synchronization with the syncopation of the music and You're this totally me. excited amazing. me like wow. as as luck would have it uh, henry and i have extremely extremely similar tastes in music which is just uncanny because i'm i'm a huge <laughs> music snob and and uh it's so rare that i find someone with similar tastes we we bumped into each other at a square pusher concert by uh oh, by, crazy <laughs> by chance as well so i was totally like smitten by this uh by this uh trailer that i saw and i watched it many many times until lo and behold one day it was released and the game was every bit as amazing as i imagined it would be just this short platform game where the syncopation is king and every little aspect of the game is totally on this kind of tiktok clock that is just in time with this music um so not only is it in time with the music but different uh platforms and different uh, uh hazards in the environment like they only move the, every every kind of millisecond they move they're also kind of producing a sound that adds to this sonic tapestry of us of gotcha. music so it's this very like synesthetic kind of a an experience that it now remind just gels me. So well. There's a chance. There's a chance that I might have played it or saw it. Do you do you remember when it came out? It came out uh, last year, I think, early last yeah. year. Yeah. You know what? I think I might have played a demo or like just a little tiny bit of the game. Um, is it possible that I, I I'm just remembering from the back of my head now that when you're running and you're jumping across like small chasms, etc. Can you like pick up orbs or light up these orbs that also add to the music, or am I thinking of a completely different game? I think that's it exactly. So your your avatar oh, is a, a square when it's standing still, or a triangle yes. when it's jumping, or a circle when it's moving. And um, every now and then you have to go and grab this little orb that's either standing still somewhere or kind of involved in some sort of a pattern, and you have to think musically in order to grab it, and then you drag it over to some other platform, and the that's, whole screen I... changes color. I completely remember that game now. And one thing I really loved about it is it somehow in the middle of this platformer managed to integrate some, some musical puzzles. Um, and the musical puzzles were very good. I was like, wow, I actually have to think musically to get through this game. It's totally the kind of game that a musician or a drummer or a DJ would find natural and would be very like stimulated and happy about the design. So the, <laughs> That's it, awesome. it pushes all the right buttons for me. It's it the whole if you know the game as well as I do, I've probably played it four or five times now. Right. It maybe takes like twenty minutes to get through the whole thing on the regular difficulty, but it's clearly gotcha. one of the best games I ever played, and that's not oh. something I say lightly. No, that's so. that sounds that sounds amazing, man. I I unfortunately to get it, didn't get a chance to play it. I think what happened was a friend of mine had gotten a copy of it, and uh, this was last year sometime. And um, he had shown me um, playing this game, and I'm like, wow, it. I think synesthetic is exactly the right word for the feeling that you get from it. This kind of amazing kind of um, combination of kinesthetic movement and and music, which I really dig. You don't see that too often. You don't. You don't. And often um, games that are labeled as music games are kind of shallow in some way, like you drum along with the rhythm or you press buttons to the rhythm. So this was something that just took a, a, a already well-established and very well-polished genre. You know, they basically tried Absolutely. to eat Super Mario's lunch, but they did something very unique with it <laughs> that was just kind of 
inextricably tied to the to the gameplay itself so they added this whole new dimension i can't compliment them enough and in fact i sent them an email just saying what an amazing game it was and they gave me a very gracious thank you (laughs) that's nice i had no idea that it came out of bento miso that's 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 oh so it didn't come out at bento miso i was just that's just where i learned about it Um, oh okay i thought it was a bento miso developer yeah no although there are a whole bunch of great games that come out of the team there from toronto um this one i think was from somewhere in the nordic country oh okay okay that all right that's very very cool i didn't realize that i should have clarified so that cool love it i'll i'm gonna put the trailer in the show notes for sure and a link to the game it's like five bucks when it's not on sale phenomenal sweet wow that's great Um, anything else you're playing yeah quickly i played uh oregon trail with the wife um (laughs) that's always a ton of fun what a great educational game that is it's so much fun. which uh which version are you playing we played, I think it's called Deluxe, so it's not the very first one wow. in CGA graphics, it's in VGA with mouse controls. Yep, and you're playing it on DOSBox or something? We Yes, we played it on DOSBox. So, oh, really good, cool. really good version, it's a little bit expanded from the original, where you can like talk to people and hear a little bit of historical dialogue and stuff like that, so... That was a fun game. Um, my, uh, you know, the fun in that game is to play with people that you know. And so my wife and I naturally, you know, there's five people in the, in your, uh, right. uh, your, your uh, caravan. And so my wife was the, uh, was the driver, the main person, and she was a yep. doctor, which uh, gives you fewer Good bonuses, choice. but you start with uh, more money and you, there's less of a chance of people dying. Right, um, exactly. And so I was her uh, right-hand man. And then our three other uh, our three other uh, compatriots were our, our idiot budgies. So, um, I, <laughs> so basically promptly... those, your, your budgies were your red shirted ensigns of the, uh, of the trip. I get it. Well, I did a good enough job of filling that role as a matter of fact, because oh, really? my, my wife, the phenomenal healer that uh, she ought to be, I quickly caught a nasty case of dysentery and, uh, <laughs> it wasn't long before I pooped myself to death. <laughs> And then I think one of the budgies, everybody else lived, and they were all just happy. I think one of the budgies kept breaking her leg and then was healed and then broke her leg again and was healed again. <laughs> one of them got bitten by a snake but pulled through, so, wow. you know, she, she's awesome. got all the love in the world for the budgies, but the hubby can go poop himself for all she cares. So we, did you actually make it to the end of, did you make it to Oregon? Yeah. yeah That's we amazing. Did it's uh, not horribly hard. I don't remember whether there are difficulty levels, but I think when you're the doctor, your chances are much better, especially when you played it a few times and you know what you should stock up on and what, you know, clothing yeah. clothing is tradable to the the natives and uh, sometimes uh, parts, uh, spare parts for your uh, wagon are valuable for trade for other people. And if right. you're good at hunting, then you can trade food to everybody. So you kind of learn those little tricks, but... Uh, that's awesome. You can't, you can't bring enough toilet paper for dysentery, so that, that did me in. <laughs> uh, I have like a, I have like a terrible dysentery story, but I'm not going to tell it on this podcast. <laughs> okay. I actually know somebody who contracted dysentery on a trip to Peru, Ooh. and and I will not embarrass them um, by 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 because there's a chance they might actually listen to this episode. Ooh. And, I think uh, we're all, yeah, they, we're probably all better off not hearing this one. Yeah, most most definitely, it's it it's it's a very uh, yeah, it's de- definitely a very disturbing story. And well, the lesson of the story was Peruvian doctors are very very wonderful people. They're very nice and friendly. However, um, if you do develop dysentery on your trip to Machu Picchu, you're probably going to spend um, five to ten days in the equivalent of a, um, a vet clinic um, because 
the um, the trail to Machu Picchu, uh, ironically, you know, Oregon Trail, trail to Machu mm-hmm. Picchu, um, does not actually have hospitals. So um, the person who is who this happened to spent um, five to ten days in the equivalent of a vet clinic. Um, going through lots and lots of toilet paper so Ugh. uh yeah <laughs> anyway splendid um, well yeah, then. beautiful oh a quick question about um oregon trail for our dos listeners our dos gaming listeners um was it if i remember correctly was it in um 640 by 480 ega or was it actually in 256 vga not entirely sure. I think you're right. I'm, I'm, I'm think you're right about the resolution, and okay. I'm pretty sure it was two fifty six colors. I'm, I, oh, I know okay. EGA when I see it, and I'm pretty sure this was full fledged VGA. Okay, cool. Yeah, because I remember at some point playing an Oregon Trail. I think it was like a sequel to Oregon Trail, maybe Oregon Trail two. Um, but I remember there's one version, maybe it's deluxe. But when you load it up in DOSBox, it actually loads up this really interesting um, high res EGA mode. Um, and, uh, it reminds me a little bit of, did you ever happen to play Railroad Tycoon Deluxe? Uh, no, but I know what it looks like. Yeah. Railroad Tycoon Deluxe has this really strange thing, which, you know, when you're seeing, um, um, 640 by 480 EGA, or I'm sure Anatoly is going to chime in that I'm actually wrong about this, that it's actually a VGA mode, uh, with 16 colors, but, um, (laughs) Um, it looks really odd, like you're seeing like super high-res graphics, except you've only got 16 colors on screen, which looks really strange. Hmm. And I think so, if I'm not mistaken, 640 by 480 qualifies as super VGA. Maybe I'm That's what I that. thought too. Exactly. Okay. It's So it's not technically not an EGA mode, but it's SVGA with 16 colors, which is really... I would love if somebody uh, sent in a comment to explain the differences. I remember at some point I got lectured over the differences between... Um, MCGA and VGA graphics. Um, I don't know if you remember that discussion. It was sometime a year or two ago. Um, no, I wish a, I knew the difference. It was a really good discussion. Somebody will have to <laughs> to clarify that again. But I'm pretty sure MCGA was an extended CGA mode um, that allowed for um, the same amount of colors, but maximum 320 by 200 or 320 by 240. Whereas VGA could, um, I don't know, VGA, there was a difference. And fuck, I'm, I'm totally going to get shit on by somebody for this but uh anyway um sorry to derail i was just very curious about the differences oh quite all right yeah i think there were a lot of uh weird modes like that to accommodate the limited amount of video memory that the devices had so you could have more colors or more resolution but not both exactly yeah and that's what i think that's what i think is the distinction between them but again i guess we'll leave that up to our wonderful listeners to uh please do yeah (laughs) please do let us know listeners on um The last thing that I played this week, I guess, of note was um, kind of my go-to game, Binding of Isaac Rebirth. Oh, cool! uh, Did you play? Have you played any of the Binding of Isaac games? I have. I should say. Yes, I played the the original Binding of Isaac. I played the hell out of that game. I think I have like 450 hours or something in that game. (laughs) It's nuts. Like this was. It's it's just interesting enough that you can either pay all attention to it or you can like watch a movie or something while playing it. Right. Um, Right. And lately, um, I've been getting up early and riding my exercise bike for half an hour every weekday morning. And so I have this nice. uh, lovely sensation of playing Binding of Isaac while I'm on this kind of lean back uh, exercise bike with uh, playing with my gamepad <laughs> and like sweat dripping down my elbows. 
So that <laughs> makes it all the more interesting, I suppose. But this Very game attractive is just image. Thank you really, oh, for that. Oh, good, good. I'm glad to share. <laughs> it's a fantastic game. Just so oh. well balanced. And, well, I, wouldn't, I don't know if balance is the word for it, because you're either... You're either woefully underpowered or yeah, ridiculously exactly. overpowered, which is okay with me because it's just got so much variety. And what I, one thing I love about Binding of Isaac was just, you know, for the, for the folks that, who haven't played it, um, I, th I like to think of it as kind of like Zelda meets a roguelike, like stripped down to its bare necessities. Um, and, you know, the, the ability to um, remind me, is Rebirth any different? I'm assuming this is the sequel. I haven't played Rebirth. It's a sequel slash remake. It like has oh. basically all the items that were in the original and its expansion, plus okay. a few more. And ah. it's also in a brand new engine. The original one was made with Flash, and I think this one is a, a custom right. engine, which doesn't have the, the same uh, slow frame rate or other limitations that Flash had. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Yeah, I only played the Flash version, and I think I played it pretty pretty heavily for, for at least a few weeks, but um, I, I didn't go back to Rebirth. That's very cool. Oh, totally recommend it. It's just phenomenal. Just punishingly hard. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, that was my recollection of... of the Flash version too. It's just like absolutely punishing. It is, but it's kind of invitingly so. <laughs> so that's enough uh, flapping for me right now. What have you been playing this week? Oh man, I've gotten to play some cool stuff. Um, I got to try a game called The Yog. Have you ever heard of The Yog? That is a Bento Miso game, actually, and I played that one in pre-release with a group of people at one of their social nights. Great game. Oh my god, that's amazing. Um, Damien Summers is the name of the developer, and I can't remember the name of the lady who did the art, and she's a comic yes, book artist. exactly, yeah. Um, I think it's a three-person team, something like that, like um, designer, writer, and maybe a musician. Yeah, um, that's right. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. I had no... Well, there you go. Thank you, Bento Miso. We had a great time. Um, we sat down and um, just had a quick couple of two or three quick sessions, the YOG. For anybody who's never played the YOG, do you know how to spell that, by the way? Is it like Y-A-H-W-G or something? Or H-W or W-H? Yeah, one of those. Yeah, exactly. Um, really weird um, title. I Do you happen to know the origins of that name? No, I don't. Um... I'll, I'll mention it in a second. Why don't you go ahead and talk a little bit about the premise? Okay, well, the premise of the Yog is... Um, how to best describe this? It's um, a game where I think of it a little bit like a board game. You've got this uh, little village that you are trying to protect, and you, you get this kind of creepy poetry at the start implying that something bad's going to happen in several weeks or several months, and you don't know when. Um, and you should probably get prepared for it. So... Um, the overall theme is that this village is going to somehow come under attack or somehow fall apart. There's going to be some sort of devastation. And you have three uh, three or four characters. Um, well, in our case, we had three. But I think you can play even... Uh, how? I think it's you can play minimum of two, maximum of four, something like that. I don't remember. I That might be it. Or is it always four and you can just kind of split those between as many people as you like? It's been a while. I don't remember. I think in our case we we only needed we only used three, so you could actually select how many players are playing. Okay. Um, and so the idea is you get these characters, and you get to um, they get these basic statistics, kind of like stamina and charisma, you know, very general uh, Dungeons and Dragons style statistics. And you visit each area of this little um, kind of contained village, and you can do stuff. You can go to the forest and chop wood, and that'll build up your strength. Um, you can go um, to the um, um, the alleys and fight crime, and that will somehow build up. You know, for instance, sometimes that um, 
build up builds up your I think it builds up your intelligence or something like that. Or if you choose to cause crime, like actually steal from people, you can build up the amount of money you've got. Um, so the idea is each player in this game assumes a role of one person, and that person usually the strategy is to um, max out one of your skills. Uh, at least that's one way to play it. Um, and you, for instance, one of uh, one one of my friends decided he was going to um, uh, kind of focus on his strength. So he did things that only trained up strength, and he ignored kind of all of his other stats. And the idea of the game is, after X amount of turns, um, at, you get to the end of the game, and your statistics help to to, to kind of determine what happens to this town. And um, you got kind of a little ending that describes um, what happens to this village after this, you know. Um, terrible, terrible apocalypse has happened. Does it rebuild, etc., etc.? But the best part of the game, I think, is the fact that you get these random encounters um, at each uh, place you go to, and they're usually kind of a moral question. Um, you know, um, a beggar comes up to you and asks you for gold. Do you give the beggar gold, or do you dismiss them? Uh, and usually, I think, I think in all cases, they're binaristic choices. You only get, you know, either yes or no. Uh, correct me I if think I'm so. wrong. Yeah, I think so. And yeah, and, and it re remind it remembers your choices, um, and it's really fantastic because, um, for instance, at one point, um, I had a, I can't remember, I had a random encounter in an alley, and I said, yes, just give this person gold, um, and then I disappeared, and I was like, oh, well, I didn't get anything for that, I just lost a bunch of gold, shit. But the cool thing was, two turns later, I went back to the alley, and the same uh, NPC came back up to me and said, Oh hey, I recognize you. Turns out I'm a witch. Let me grant you all these special powers, and it you know upgraded all of my stats you know by two points. Hmm. And I was just like, oh sweet. So you know the theme of the game is sometimes doing kind things for kind uh, for for people. You know just doing acts of kindness is really good, and it'll benefit you in some ways. In other things that have happened, which is really funny. Um, did you ever have the vampire uh, uh, event occur? I don't remember. Okay, the. Uh, <laughs> Um, my girlfriend chose, and I, she made some sort of terrible choice at some point, and um, she basically got cursed with becoming a vampire, and um, the ending of the game actually reflects the choices you've made for your character, and her ending was, you know, each character has their own specific ending, was basically you become this vampire leader and you um, make the citizens pay homage to your, you know, your, <laughs> to you and you, you know, drink their blood while they pray to you at the end of the game. So anyway, the Yogg was really, really cool. Um, I I think it's, I'm not sure how people are responding to it, but my sense was um, it was a really cool way to try to do a, a somewhat procedural narrative. And they did a really, really good job of making you feel like you, you're part of this little town. They they really do. I remember uh, Damien, the uh, lead uh, programmer and writer, saying mm -hmm. that he recommended, you know, he always wanted to make a local co-op game. And it's kind of in the vein, ah. as you said, of a board game or even of a card game. I can sort of see it being translated exactly. to one of those media. Um, and he said that the game is the most impactful if you're sitting around with your friends and everybody reads the dialogue out loud for their own character. Which kind oh, of turned it into cool. this sort of a campfire story experience, which how often do you have like an electronic encouraged uh, experience like that? So that that was really fun. That's a perfect way to describe it. I Yeah, it totally feels like you're sitting around a campfire swapping stories about this, you know, kind of fantasy place that you're all uh, living in. That's that's awesome. 
It is awesome. And so, um, regarding the name, I think he, I, I'm not sure, but I think he had purposefully chosen something that was kind of nebulous and undefined, just like okay. whatever calamity is yeah. approaching nearer and nearer is some sort exactly. of a apocalyptic thing, but you don't really know what or how to prepare for it. So uh, it's kind of sense. a neat thing. So, uh, it's a, it's a game that does work best, I suppose, as local co-op, but now that we're in the day an age of like Twitch and other sorts of uh, streaming. Uh, Steam has its own uh, broadcast streaming thing now as well. It's the sort of thing that you can right. play over chat with one person oh, totally. uh, sharing their voice over Skype or something. So pre yeah, pretty oh. cool stuff. I, I brought this game uh, home. I, I think I bought it. Uh, I bought it, I think directly from the developer. And so I got it before oh, almost cool. anybody and I uh, told my wife, Oh, I played this awesome game at Bento Miso. Let's try it. She's like, Oh, you and your indie games. I don't want to play this. So I yanked her. <laughs> like, okay, awesome. dear, can we stop playing this now? Like she, I had enough of it before she did. She just loved it. So very, very yeah. smart game. Exactly. And my girlfriend had the same experience after one round. I was just like, I can't explain why, but I'm oddly interested in playing a second game with different characters and I want to role play this a little differently. It's kind of RPG light. Um, mm. And um, so, yeah, highly recommend it. Um, I'm not sure how much it's selling for um, on Steam, but, um, you know, it's one of those games. Yeah, and I think that's right on. It's the kind of game you can, you're, you're probably not going to have a huge, enjoyable time playing it by yourself, but if you have a chance to stream it or play it locally uh, with other people, absolutely worth it. Oh, for sure. And if you uh, don't mind uh, spoilers or any of kind of the hackery sorts, um, most or all of the data files are kind of in comma-separated variable text oh, files, so you can kind of poke under the, under the skirt a little bit and see what's going on. That's awesome. So can you actually mod it so that you've got your own text? Oh, yeah, you can mod it with uh, Notepad. <laughs> that sounds awesome because, uh, yeah, I, I would totally enjoy creating other random encounters in the game that were not originally there. I'm surprised that more people didn't do that. It's kind of a game that's screaming out for a mod community or for the Steam Workshop or something to oh, for totally. people to develop their own scenarios. That's a good idea. Yeah, and it and you know because it's got a great sense of humor. There's some really really funny stuff that happens in there, and I could easily yeah. Oh, that's that's good to hear. And in, um, in a somewhat related, to, you know, it's my turn yeah. I think now to uh, diverge uh, slightly. Um, yep. This reminds me of you know, my early infatuation with sound cards and uh, the two games that I think struck my fancy the most at the time would have been Ultima Underworld and oh, Hardball beautiful. 3 with Al Michaels. <laughs> oh, I really like Accolade's Hardball series? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was the first <laughs> one I think that had like this announcer, Al Michaels, uh, right. with uh, voice uh, recorded. And so it was just a series of wave files in a folder and basically him reading out every number and a few different scenarios. And so it was this really disjointed, jilted, horribly robotic sounding thing. It would be like, right. uh, home run by number 17, three <laughs> runners left on base. <laughs> One guy out. I don't know. So uh, uh, I, I can totally imagine it. That's awesome. Yeah, that's right. So naturally, because it's a bunch of wave files, and I had my my three dollar Radio Shack uh, microphone with my with my Sound Blaster card, I had to right. replace all of those wave files with my uh, prepubescent <laughs> <laughs> soprano voice or whatever. So that's uh, that was fun. That and also in Ultima Underworld. Um, that the beginning of that game is voiced as well. The intro sequence has uh, voice, and so rather than recording my own voice, which I think I must have done a few times, as a matter of fact, but one of the scenes in that intro has a woman screaming, and so yeah, absolutely. 
so I just replaced every wave file with the woman screaming, and I just like laughed so so hard just watching like this burly mustachioed man or the noble king or something. He's like ah, it was very juvenile, but I have extremely fond memories of hacking around. All right, that's I, amazing. I you just you just blew my mind. I had no idea. Were they Vogue files or something uh, in the in in the folder? How did you manage? They to might have been Vogue files. They might have been oh, Vogue files, which I think might have been a Sound Blaster. Uh, standard and maybe they had a sound blaster software that did it or maybe they were wave fi- i think they were voc files which was I think they were vox because i remember um sound blaster had a voc um like rec- i think it by default recorded to voc i think you're right that must have been their proprietary format which was popular in the early days of uh, the sound blaster but quickly fell out of vogue yeah. Oh man, you just blew my mind because um, Ultima Underworld, if if our listeners haven't played it, but I'm sure many of you have, has. I, I'm just going to go out there and say it. One of the worst voiced intros I have ever seen in any game. Period. And, <laughs> I, and <laughs> you're probably right. You're probably right. You know, it's kind of like this awful guy imitating. You know, in English, it's like, it's like they've taken poor Ariel out into the. You know, blah blah blah. blah. It's so bad. Mm-hmm. And I, I've. Uh, it's it's like you know weighing in my head between Ultima Seven uh, Serpent Isle, which has like this stand back, and <laughs> Butlin, you know, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, it, it it's like in the, my top five worst um, worst intros, v- worst most poorly voiced intros ever. So that makes me so happy you put in um, something even better. <laughs> I, I yeah, it's arguable whether I improved it, but I definitely changed it. <laughs> Uh, it's funny because right. I can remember the pitch of that exact scream. It just comes like comes out of left field, like for, out of nowhere. That's awesome. That it does. So pardon okay. my interjection. Oh yeah, no problem. Um, last thing, I oh, I got so many to discuss. Um, I'll I'll skip over King of Dragon Pass. I'll cover that next time we talk. Um, I've been playing. Uh, well, I didn't get to play, but I watched somebody play King of Dragon Pass. And uh, that's the new iPad version that's out that replaces the ancient creaking Windows version that's been around forever. Um, and I'll skip over to Broken Sword, which um, my girlfriend and I have been playing for the last uh, month or so. Oh, the first um, one? Yeah, the first one. Um, Broken Sword, um, I think it's got two different titles. I want to say it might have been called Circle of Blood in in North America. I'm not sure, but it's Shadows, uh, Shadow of the Templars, at least in uh, Europe. And I'm pretty sure that's the version I have. Hmm. I, uh, you, you go first and then I'll tell you about my experience with that game. Okay, cool. Um, well I'm, you know, I played it about five years ago. I'd finally broke down and said, okay, I'm going to play broken sword. And, um, I was first just absolutely blown away by the quality of the uh, animation. Um, it was just, oh yeah, it's, it's incredible. I immediately thought like, wow, um, I've never seen anything like this except in dragon's lair. Um, Mm -hmm. and uh, I was really impressed and I got, a little bit into the story. I got as far as this hotel, uh, I think it's called Hotel Ubu or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got stuck. And this was five years ago and I played it over and over and over and I couldn't get past it. So I, I gave up and it's been five years. This month, my girlfriend decided we should finally play Broken Sword. So um, we got to the exact same point and I, and I said, I, I literally have no idea what to do. And she was like, oh, well, it's really simple. Just um, throw the um, throw the map off the balcony and it'll land in the alley. You can go pick it up outside. I'm like, oh, my God, are you kidding me? That's the solution, the fucking puzzle. And and yeah, she, she, she solved like a puzzle solution that took me five years to figure out and I couldn't figure it out. So, 
Yeah, so it's it's been fantastic, and I found out that Don Bluth um, Studios did the animation for it, which turns out to be the actual studio that also did Dragon's Lair. Oh, that's right. With, I didn't know yeah. it was a studio. Hmm. It was, and um, at least one of the UK Don Bluth Studios. I don't know if it's the same as their American um, studio, but uh, yeah, it explains the very Don Bluthy style animation. Um, and for anybody who doesn't hasn't played Dragon's Lair, the arcade game, he also did a fantastic set of films he was an ex-disney animator um who did um the secret of nim which is an mm-hmm. absolute classic in my mind mm-hmm. um as well as uh i want to say he did titan ae yeah titan ae yeah exactly it's something that's much more recent and that was i think one of the first kind of cg animated uh um films so yeah i'm really really loving um um broken sword and um, even though, you know, everyone beats it to death over the really horrible voiceovers, um, I think the game itself, um, has the, it has a lot going for it. It is, it is a good game. It had some clever writing. It, it was pretty funny and snarky. I like the yeah. protagonist, uh, exactly. George Stubbard. Um, so my experience with this game, this is, if you, so, um, Every let's say let's start this off by saying you know uh, most mornings uh, we can rely on our good buddy Anatoly Dos Nostalgic to uh, initiate a session of morning Dos talk and if you are uh, unfortunate enough to mention a game that was uh, for uh, Windows <laughs> heaven forbid he will smack you on the forehead and give you the old not Dos not hashtag Dos exactly not Dos. Yeah, so if you ever want to incur the wrath of uh, that guy, then by all means, tell a story like the one I'm about to tell. Um, (laughs) I somehow, although my earliest and fondest memories of playing computer games are adventure games, I had not heard of this series whatsoever until the 2000s or so. Um, And so the first time I heard of it, and the first time I ever played it, and I actually finished it, was on the Nintendo DS, if you can believe it. Oh, you're kidding me. I remember that version that came out. They ported it to the DS. It was quite a good port, considering, I don't know what the resolution of that screen is, 320 by 240 or something. It's actually not too far, I guess, is it? Yeah. Or was the game in Super VGA? I think the the game game was was Super VGA. The game was actually Super VGA, but it looked pretty good on the Nintendo DS. It really did, and they had some cutscenes with the animation recordings and stuff like that, too. It didn't have speech, but yeah. they really distilled the experience down into something that was like cohesive and playable and enjoyable. The touch controls uh, made sense. Touch controls are a pretty enjoyable way to play an adventure game, especially with oh, the definitely. stylus, I think. Yeah, um, it's, it's really funny that was your first experience, because that was mine, too. I found oh, it wow. for like, Yeah, I found it for five bucks at EB Games, and I was like, they released Broken Sword for the DS? I'm like, I... Uh, probably gonna suck but i'll grab it anyway and that was the game that i got stuck well (laughs) stuck on for for x amount of years was yeah broken sword one for the ds that's amazing that you played it too Mm -hmm. so that's it's like a an updated version i don't know what they call the updated version since the dos days but it adds like a subplot for uh the uh the uh co-star nicole collard i think was her name right and for some reason, the two of them fall in love at the drop of a hat for no particular reason, like two-thirds of the way through, and I didn't understand what that was. But it was an enjoyable game, if not a little bit ludicrous in the in the, the pacing and the plots. But it, it had all the right story beats and stuff to make it a kind of a, a wholesome game experience. So uh, yeah, I give yeah. it my thumbs up. Exactly. And I, what I love about it is it's got a, a really offbeat sense of humor that I wouldn't expect in a game. It's got some fairly dark humor in, in, in points and at certain points. And 
I don't know. It seemed like it was actually taking some risks that I rarely saw in other adventure games. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, like it had branching choices and stuff. I don't want to repeat too much that I heard on the phenomenal podcast, of course, by Joe Mastroioni. I'm exactly. sorry if I just mangled his name. The Upper Memory Block <laughs> podcast. He just kind of deconstructed and discussed this game on his yeah. uh, show as well. So I highly recommend checking that exactly. out. Exactly. I think that's a really recent episode last, I think, three or four episodes ago. Is that what uh, spurred, spurred you to uh, check it out again? Um, you know, ironically, no. Um, we just happened to be playing it. And then the podcast episode came up. And I'm like, huh, that's weird. I'm like, Joe finally got around to that episode. So that's huh. super awesome. And yeah, definitely recommend that episode. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Um, I'm not going to talk about any other games I've been playing. I played a couple of board games over the last few weeks, um, which were really, really great. I think I'm going to bring those up actually while we talk about our main topic. So what's our main topic today? All right. Well, um, I was thinking today for our main topic, we could touch a little bit about message boards, which were one aspect of BBSs that we kind of mentioned in passing, but uh, bear a little bit of clarification. And then uh, the real meat and potatoes of the BBS experience would be the so-called door games. Oh, baby, am I excited about talk about door games. All but, right. Uh, oh, I just have a phone ringing. I think we're just going to have to cut this part out. Okay. <laughs> All right, it's done. Sorry about no that. No sweat. No sweat. Life happens. All right. Uh, why don't I uh, why don't I hand the old Russian roulette pistol to you and let you decide which of our topics we're going to embark upon first? Uh, we just talked about games for a little bit, so let's switch switch modes a little bit. Talk about message bases. Um, message I base. Ha- that's right. I forgot it was called that. Yeah, isn't it a strange word? It's I, I'm not even sure what the why they would call that message bases as opposed to message boards, but. Yeah, message bases were basically the the way you would describe um, what we would call an online forum. Um, the um, bulletin board systems in general, um, at least all of them that I knew of, always had a message area, message base, whatever they were called, um, where you could go and post messages publicly to other people on the board. Um, what was your, uh, do you remember your first experience posting to a message base? No, I don't really. Um, I really don't. How about you? Yeah, me neither. <laughs> I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't a huge frequent um, poster on message bases, to be completely honest. I tended to lurk a lot and, and honestly use it as opportunities for finding out numbers to other BBSs or like, you know, basically voyeur in on other people's conversations about, um, you know, pirating software, etc. Mm-hmm. Well, I did participate a little bit more than that, I guess. You know, uh, okay, some cool. of the circles that I ran in were um, around music, and so there's plenty of topics, you know, technically and artistically to discuss around those areas, and also, of course, to expose other people to uh, awesome stuff that you've heard that you want other people to check out in the file areas, or if you have uh, yeah. if you get points, perhaps, for uh, other people downloading your files, uh, if you get, like, file points or something, which is something that we'll talk about, I guess, later on, then uh, right. you might encourage some people to download your file so that you would get points for that. That's awesome. Yeah, it, that, that's that's beautiful because, you know, that was one of the most important parts of BBS is where everything was kind of linked together. I mean, the idea that you had file up and down, upload and download ratios, you could kind of, um, you know, by getting other people to download your stuff or uploading other stuff, you could, you know, get yourself more access to the file areas just by posting in the message board sometimes. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I really, I really enjoyed that part of it. So um, <clears throat> I feel like I should do a better job of explaining how this actually works. So in the message boards, um, it's very, very similar to an online forum in general. Um, you would have a, um, well, in your experience, was it, um, was it, was it threaded by 
the poster or was it threaded by the topic or was it even threaded at all? That's a good question. I'm pretty sure it was by topic. Um, okay. uh, what I recall is, yeah, there, there were, there were different, uh, topic. Well, first there were like categories that you like different message base categories right. where you can decide where your message belongs. And then you could either browse, then you think you would just browse it chronologically and it was threaded by topic. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, yeah. 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 I'm pretty sure that was my experience too. It was, um, I think the closest cousin it has is maybe not the web um, online forum, but Usenet groups seem to be fairly similarly designed. I have to take your word on that because I never participated in Usenet. Oh, I was a huge user of Usenet uh, for for almost ten years, maybe even longer, fifteen. Wow. Um, but yeah, it's the general idea is you post in a uh, an area or a message space that has something to do. So, for instance, Tech Talk or, um, you know, Apple IIe questions or whatever it's going to be. And then, you know, hopefully you're going to have uh, a few days later, a few weeks later, somebody respond to your message. Um, how was, um, in your experience, especially on the music boards, uh, how often would it take to get a response? Or sorry, how uh, long it, would it take? It would vary, I suppose. I guess it depends on how compelling whatever it was that you said may have right. been to uh, encourage somebody to reply. <laughs> uh, I, I think it probably varies too much for me to generalize, but uh, yeah. usually a few days or so, if that. Sometimes yeah. you go back and forth over one day if you were really hot-headed about something. Oh, wow, that's amazing. I uh, my, my experience was, yeah, it definitely took days or weeks for uh, a conversation to spill out. And that's something, you know, today people aren't really used to that. We're living in, you know, the age of Twitter, um, social media, Facebook, and people don't realize that, you know, for a long time it would take days or weeks for an entire thread to spill out, which might only be five or ten responses. Um, yeah, that's right, and I guess this is uh, encouraged to a great degree by the fact that most dial-up BBSs only had one phone line, one node, so you can only have right. one person connected at any one time. So it could be that someone interested in your topic doesn't call for a day or two, or maybe tries and the line is busy and has to try again later. Yeah, um, my experience was if I had something really important to ask, I would totally ask the question and then disconnect right away because I knew that, you know, the longer I am online, the more it's going to discourage other people from connecting because they're going to get a busy signal. Mm. <laughs> um, um, out of curiosity, before we move out of um, um, talking about message bases, um, did you ever get access to private message bases? Oh, I don't really recall. You know, probably not. I'm aware okay. of it. But how about you? Uh, I definitely did. Um, I had one BBS I connected to. I remember specifically it was called the lily pad. Um, and it was, okay, so to explain to our audience or our listeners, um, the way this worked was a lot of the times you connect to a BBS and you'd have to make a judgment call. Okay, I'm going to just admit this freely that if I was looking for pirated software, I would have to make a judgment call. Is this BBS a legit BBS? Um, where it's just a bunch of shareware areas and, um, you know, full of um, friendly people talking about Star Trek, which was more often not the case. Um, or was this a full-on pirate BBS, which is, you know, there, there were always get dead giveaways. You know, it's called like Hacker's Heaven or The Underground Files or something. Um, <laughs> you, know, you know, nobody, nobody in those days bothered to hide this stuff. But, the, you know, there were people who probably were a little smart and paranoid about this who... Um, I, I like to think of this as like um, the mafia or something. You know, you run a legit business in the front end, but in the back room, that's where all the fun dealing happens. Um, and what they would have was, yeah, this place was called the Lily Pad, and it, the front end looked very friendly. Um, it would just looked like a place where um, you know local community people would talk and 
chat and post messages and download shareware. You know, I remember I downloaded my first copy of uh, of Scunny Cart, if, if you remember Scunny Cart by any sure. chance. Sure. Yeah. Uh, shareware game from, oh, I want to say it was 3D Realms, but it was not. It was, uh, Scunny Cart was another, um, I'm sure somebody will chime in with the name of the developer. Um, basically, a, a, a an attempted clone of um, Wacky Wheels, which was an attempted clone of Mario Kart. Right. Um, Wacky Wheels is totally amazing Apogee game, by the way. But I downloaded mm-hmm. Scunny Cart, and, and I played the living shit out of it before I found uh, found out about Wacky Wheels, which I loved even more. Um and there was nothing at all suspicious about this BBS, except at some point I was downloading, you know, I, I was downloading stuff. I ran out of um, uh, credits to download stuff. And we'll talk about file uh, upload and download ratios in a bit. Um, and the sysop broke into chat. And I did we talk about breaking into chat last episode? Uh, yeah, we mentioned it. Yeah, and the idea was, you know, because you're using a single user system, the sysop could blip your screen with a, a, a chat mode and it would just stop whatever you were doing and you'd have to chat with them. Um, and in my case, I was digging around in the file areas and the guy broke into chat. It was like one o'clock in the morning. It was really, really late. I think I've told you this story um, uh, before. And he said, hey, how's it going? And I said, I'm fine. You know, I'm a 14, 15 year old kid. Um, I was actually shocked because the SIFSOP had never chatted with me live before. And he says, oh, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, I'm looking for more games that are like Scunny Cart. And he's like, oh, you got to try Wacky Wheels. It's it's way better than Scunny Cart. And, um, and we started chatting about games. And then, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes in, the chat got a little bit more personal. And he started telling me about his personal problems. And, and this seemed like a youngish guy. He was probably in his early 20s or late teens, uh, much older than me at the time. And um, I, I'll never forget this. I sat there for uh, an hour and a half, two hours, three hours. I don't even know. But it was around 3.30 or 4 in the morning when the chat was over. And he had told me all about, you know, his problems with his dad. And I just listened, you know, his fr- friendly, uh, played a friendly ear and listened and was really sad about all the problems this guy was going through. And at the end, he said, you know, oh, it's so, you know, so wonderful. You're, you, you know, you listened to all my problems, you know, sorry I went on for so long about this. And I said, oh, no biggie. I'm just, you know, it was really nice talking with you. And he says, well, what do you think about becoming the co-sysop of the lily pad? <laughs> and I was just like, uh, I would love to. And he's like, okay, cool. Well, I just upgraded your access to co-sysop. And, you know, this gives you a bunch of file up- upload and download credits and you get access to the secret message areas and file areas. I'm like, secret message areas? Sweet. Um, yeah. And I and I go in and it was so awesome. The guy had pulled this off so perfectly. Um, in the message areas, he had the private file or sorry, private message bases that were only visible to you if you had like security level six or higher. And that's where all the pirates hung out. And... That was, you know, 14-year-old me. This is where you could get access to, like, an ASCII version of Cindy Crawford, um, you know. <laughs> That's uh, right. <laughs> and, you know, pirate piracy and, you know, porn, etc. were, like, totally flying in the background of this, even though the front end made it look like there was, you know, nothing really going on on this board. So um, for, I think it was six months or a year, I can't remember how long it was, I got, you know, like, preferential treat- treatment on the lily pad, and I was able to, you know get access to this huge amount of um, zero day stuff, um, which normally would have never been, you know, 
possible at the time. So yeah, I got I got a little bit more active in that message base, and be, just because I was the co-sysop, and um, I got to do little things like you know clean up the message bases, or you know you're basically the janitor of the BBS. Um, but uh, yeah, but that it's was an honor you're you're thrilled to have. Oh yeah, as as a 14 year old, I was like, oh my god, you know, I'm like the you know I'm I'm next to God now. I'm I'm practically a system administrator. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was super cool. I I really enjoyed that, and I got pretty active on that BBS until one day it just disappeared. And to this day, I don't know. Yeah, what happened? Just the phone stopped answering. Um, I hopefully the guy didn't get busted, but I think it's more likely that, you know, this was the late '90s and BBSs were on their way out, uh, and the internet was on its way in. Could be. Well, I have a buddy in uh, high who, uh, from high school who ran uh, who ran a pirate BBS. Oh, and nice! It was pretty major. Um, wow. He had four nodes, which was like unheard of. That's that means killer. that this guy was paying for and dedicating four dial-up phone lines to his house <laughs> specifically for people to connect concurrently, which That's is like unheard awesome. of. So uh, one day, you know, walking to the bus stop, uh, one morning walking to the bus stop from home, there were a whole bunch of cops outside his house. You're and kidding me! He didn't show up to school for a couple of days, and his BBS was down. Oh and, my god. Uh, then he came back, uh, and uh, they gave him like community service or something like that. But they caught him red-handed. He was not oh, exactly subtle that, about his I, hobby. My heart would have sunk if I was a user of that BBS. I would have been like, yeah, "Oh God, they're coming for me next." I I I sort of thought about it, but nothing other ever came of it. I don't know whether they really. I don't know whether it really maintains logs or if they knew right. what to do with such a brand new technology in the by you know by means of. Uh, cyber forensics or whatever you might yeah. call that i think we all kind of got off scot-free i like to think so the, anyway the, the, and and yeah poor guy probably got a slap on the wrist but it must have scared the shit out of him i think he got a like a, a juvenile record or whatever which i think disappears when he turns 18 so he gotcha. uh he lucked out i think i don't know wow. uh, i don't know where the money for the four phone lines came from or what happened with his parents <laughs> or whatever yeah and but, i assume uh, you know and that, that was one of the things that i found so interesting about those days was you know, in, in my experience, um, nobody's parents knew anything about what, you know, teenagers were doing with these phone lines. Um, you know, all parents knew, all my parents knew was that the damn phone line was always busy after nine o'clock. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they needed to get a hold of somebody at our house, it was like a huge ordeal because, you know, I'd have the phone line tied up until two or three in the morning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they definitely didn't know about any of the illicit stuff happening on... <laughs> being sent over the phone lines. And in my case, you know, this was, you know, not a lot, but it was, you know, I think, um, um, you know, tiny little games that I had managed to get over my 2400 baud modem. I'd be so excited about, you know, getting a, or even uh, I honestly, my exposure, um, through the message bases and the file areas was to shareware. Um, in, oh yeah, me too. Yeah. There was, there was a lot of good shareware out there, not just pirated software, um, the shareware I played, I played the living shit out of. Um, did you do you remember any specific titles that you downloaded? Well, of course there was Wolfenstein 3D, which was like nice. the big Kahuna. Um, oh, you're putting me on the spot. I'm sure something will come to mind, but yeah. tons and tons of shareware between like file utilities to games to like anything. If it was software, I had to get my grubby mitts on it and just kind of test every tiny little facet of it. Yeah, exactly. I remember getting access to different um, modem protocols like HS Link we mentioned in the last episode. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just kind of a way for slow, a slow way for things to spread. I specifically remember downloading. Um, I don't know if you ever played this. You might appreciate this as a mod scene uh, guy. One must fall twenty ninety seven. 
Oh, yes, indeed. That was yeah. uh, a great robot combat game, and the musician was a guy that I really admired. He went by the name C.C. Catch. His name was Kenny Cho. Oh, cool. I didn't realize Kenny Cho did that soundtrack. Oh, brilliant soundtrack. Really cool techno-y stuff. Oh, yeah. I love that soundtrack, and I remember the first time I heard it, I was like, shit, I can't believe my computer's capable of playing this. Like, it, And I didn't realize at the time it was a mod music soundtrack because the download was really tiny. It was like less than one 720K diskette. Um, yep. and, and me and my sister, I think we played, um, two player via the keyboard because you could take two different sides of the keyboard and actually manage to have a multiplayer game with one must yeah. fall. Um, That's for anybody right. who's, who's never played one must fall, it was a robot fighting game, not dissimilar to street fighter or mortal Kombat. Um, and it kind of used these pre-rendered 2d characters that would run around on the screen. And it was just fun. It was tons of fun. I think it was an Apogee product if I, if I'm not, uh, if I'm not wrong. Yeah, I think you're right about that. And I remember what was really characteristic about that one was how it took advantage of modern CPUs. I forget if there was a Pentium mode or maybe just a 486 oh, mode really? that would make screws every time you punch the other robot. Oh, also, like right. this shower of screws would rain out from that uh, robot and bounce all over the floor. It was just really spectacular. You're absolutely right. If I remember correctly, it was actually enabled by having a floating point unit on your CPU. Oh, yeah, explain. math coprocessor or something like that. Exactly. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's funny. I forgot. I could see. I Okay, I can explain something. I never was able to see that because I had a 486 SX33. Um, and for our listeners who don't know the beauty of um, Intel's evilness, um, what Intel did with the 486 processor, if I remember correctly, is it was a full-fledged uh, floating-point processor that they literally disabled um, the floating-point unit on it, even though it, it was physically there, uh, unless I'm completely wrong. So um, basically, you just get a crippled 486. Um, and if you wanted the you know the hardcore Wing Commander 3-capable um, uh, processor, you'd need a 486DX, which include the math coprocessor on board. Uh, or at least the enabled version of it. And that drove me nuts for years because that really severely limited what I could um, enable in terms of special effects in games. And in certain games, it just made the game slow to a crawl, like um, Bioforge, for instance. I think that was my experience playing um, One Must Fall, was that my computer, I don't remember what it was. It might have been a DX66, uh, or it might have been Ooh, an nice. SX33 at the time. I did have a okay. DX66 and later a DX133, I think. But um, Oh, wow. Even though at the time when I first played uh, One Must Fall 2097, my computer was too slow to handle it on maximum <laughs> settings. Uh, that didn't stop me from running it on maximum settings. And so the game was going like like four frames every one second yeah. or something like that. But you could just see every glistening screw pouring out of the, the, <laughs> the wounds of these hulking behemoth robots. I couldn't get enough of that. That was awesome. That's, that's hilarious. Yeah, and if I remember correctly, mod music itself needed a little bit of processing power. Um, I remember, I think mod players generally needed a 386 or a 486, or am I, am I wrong about that? You could, uh, I don't think I learned about it before I had a 386, okay, so you could very yeah. well be right about that. What I remember was, uh, first playing my very first MP3 files. That's what really oh, brought yeah. my CPU to a crawl much more than mod <laughs> ever did. And it's probably because the MP3 had a higher bit rate. And so that meant that the that's hard right. drive had to work harder. And I think the CPU had to decompress and decode the file into audio a little bit better i think mods were i don't know if mod mod players were made in assembler or what but they were very lean they were you know often um, 
often modern music being rendered in real time would accompany a, a demo, which was like a, a music right. video sort of being uh, rendered in real time as well. So the mod couldn't overwhelm the CPU too much. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to show anything on screen at once. Yeah, exactly. And I think uh, now that I realize that, it's probably they're well pre-386. They're probably in the 286-8088 era. Wow. I think so. I think so. That's very cool. Um, okay, so back to message areas. Um, oh, yeah, that. <laughs> um, did you, were you a user of what's called FidoNet? I wasn't really. I was aware of it. So I would often participate in local message boards. I'll let you talk about FidoNet in a second. Sure. Well, I guess I'll, I'll just give the preamble. No, I won't. I'll just say that I, I participated in local message boards, and what I enjoyed about those was that there was kind of a sense of community where you log on to yeah. a BBS and it would only be the, the chosen few who knew about the BBS and the even fewer of them that uh, cared enough about the community to participate and to send messages to each other. So you kind of had this little tight-knit village of people exactly. on each BBS. And that might uh, influence what kind of like a tone or a voice you use at those BBSs. You know, maybe the <laughs> pirate BBSs were kind of like the uh, biker bar mentality, whereas the public domain BBS might be a little bit more genteel. Oh, absolutely. But, I, I, I totally re forgot that we should talk about the cultures before we move on to Fidonet. Um, each BBS definitely had its own lo local culture because it was, you know, totally painted by the types of people who connect. And um, since I spent quite a bit of time on pirate BBSs, I kind of got to know, um, you know, pirate BBS culture, which was basically a bunch of, you know, 14, 13 year olds calling each other narcs and uh, cops. Um, mm -hmm. You know, accusing each other, you know, that was like the, the, the go-to um, slur you could use is uh, calling somebody a lamer, um, because calling somebody a lamer was effectively calling them a cop, which is <laughs> really funny That's to right. me now. Yeah. And, Whoever you know, was going to spoil their fun, yeah. Exactly. And, uh, you know, they were always accusing each other of being, you know, cops, which, you know, I really doubt in, in 1991 that the police had time to investigate each BBS and infiltrate them to find out, you know, they had one pirated copy of The Incredible Machine on it or something. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but these, you know, these kids were, were rabid in attacking each other over calling each other narcs or lamers. And uh, yeah, and there was a whole terminology that kind of came with, you know, becoming, uh, um, you know, let's say a recognized user of these pirate BBSs. Um, do you remember um, new user passwords? Yes. <laughs> or NUPS? Um, yes. Yeah. Do you want to explain to, to our listeners what a NUP is? Okay, sure. So, um, and this is, thinking about this makes me think that perhaps I was, in fact, involved in some private message areas <laughs> in retrospect. But uh, often a BBS would have a new user password, which meant that in order to create an account, um, you had to know, you know, the password. You had to know the secret word. And right. the only way that you would know that is if you were kind of a friend of a member. It was sort of a secret society. Exactly. Uh, Stonecutters kind of a thing, you might say. So, um, yeah, it, uh, and other BBSs, as I recall, maybe I'm remembering wrong, but it seems to me like you could sign up as an ordinary user or perhaps gain message. Maybe it wasn't a new user password. Maybe it was an access password or something right. to get into the secret area. Then you needed to know the subsequent password to get past, like, the, the facade that turns yeah. into a... Like, the pet store that turns into a, a speakeasy. That kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And everybody hides their beers behind their backs when, when you know, the cops come in. Um, That's right. Sorry, this is definitely in-joke Simpsons stuff. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, yeah, the new user password, in my experience, what happened was um, you, you would dial up this BBS and you just get a login prompt. Um, and 
usually, you know, you'd get some sort of, um, you know, welcome to the Star Trek, you know, Enterprise BBS and have a little cute antsy animation. But sometimes you just get this black login prompt and I would be like, oh, that's kind of cool. Like, what is this? And, um, you know, you type in a couple of names and nothing would work and, you know, you couldn't log in. And then it would say, are you a new, are you a new user? And you click yes, or sorry, you type Y for yes. And it say, enter NUP. And I remember the first time that came up, I was just like, what the hell is that? So I'd put in a thing that says, you know, NUP wrong, disconnected, lamer kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, there were a few weeks where I couldn't figure out what the hell this was, but I kept the BBS number. And then I went to one of the elite um, BBS sites and asked in the message boards, I said, does anybody know what a NUP is? <laughs> you know, of course, and then I have 10 people jump on me, you know. And say, you know, oh, you know, you're total lamer. You don't even know what a nup is. I can't believe this. You know, go back to go back to kindergarten, kid, kind of stuff. And somehow I figured out that it's a new user password. So I said, does anybody then know the nup to this one phone number? And I got private messaged from somebody, um, and they said, hey, you know, don't ask about that pu stuff publicly. That that board is, you know, private board. But you know, um, you know, I do know the NUP, uh, at least this week the NUP is, and then, you know, Swertfish or something like that. So, um, you know, you, you, I, I often said, you know, cool, thanks. I reconnected, typed in Swordfish and, you know, certainly you get into the board, you register as a new user, but they had multiple levels. So just having the NUP wasn't enough. That would just get you to register. Um, ours actually, the, the one I connected to actually had a multiple choice or sorry, not a multiple choice, but like a, a, a questionnaire, um, where you had to know some of the pirate terminology to get level one access or level two access. Uh, mm -hmm. did you ever have that happen? Yep. Yep. I can't remember what that, what that, uh, phenomenon was called. I'm sure it had a name. Yeah, it, it totally had a name and I can't, it's slipping my mind too, but yeah, it was a little questionnaire saying like, for instance, what does, you know, the acronym RZR stand for? And, you know, you'd have to type in Razor 1911 because you knew that, you know, Razor was the coolest, uh, uh <laughs> um, distribution group out there. Um, mm -hmm. so yeah, that was my experience. Um, and I, what I would do then is, you know, once I would get access to that board, you'd get into the message area there, and certainly there would be people talking about NUPs to other boards that you want to connect to. So you kind of had to be a little bit of a private investigator on your own to not only find out the NUP to these boards, but also find their phone numbers. Um, do you remember, like, you know, the really elite boards didn't have their phone numbers posted publicly anywhere? Yes, yes, I do. Um, being involved in the mod scene as I was, right. it was common for people that were in the mod and demo scenes to uh, produce like advertising material or like a teaser yeah. of some sort, or maybe even just like an ASCII uh, text file or something with ASCII art on it or something. And they would very often kind of give you at the bottom the name of the BBS, right. and the phone number would be like 416-XXX-XXXX. Yeah, exactly. And it was like it was like the opposite of advertising. Advertising to tell you as little as possible. I don't really understand this phenomenon exactly. Oh, I can just very I, boastful. I can I can totally speak to it actually. Um, Please do. Yeah, the idea was what they would give you would be just the area code or like the, the dialing prefix, and you'd have to somehow find out the last four numbers of the um, of the board. So what you would do is say, hey. You know, I'm cool enough to at least know the name of the board and its area code and maybe the dialing prefix if I'm lucky. Um, so what you could do is go to the elite boards and say, 
hey, you know, um, you could lie, you know, say, hey, um, anyone got the last four numbers to the name of this board? I totally, I totally wrote it down wrong or I misplaced the number. Um, and, you know, there's a one in 10 chance somebody would feel sorry for you and say, oh, yeah, the last four numbers are this. The reason for that was because it would discourage, um, you know, what they imagined to be police or um, the FBI going after them by if you, you know, it's not so much a security problem if you only give them the last four digits and maybe not the first three or the first six. Um, uh. And yeah, and the other cool thing was um, the area code would also tell you what country they were in um, because there were plenty of Norwegian and Swedish BBSs that, you know, you'd never be able to connect to in a million years. Um, you know, if especially you're into the mod scene, uh, a lot of that stuff came over overseas uh, and, you know, came from Sweden, for instance. Yeah, so, yeah, the lion's share was from the Nordic countries. Exactly, yeah. So, you know, the um, you if with a little bit of sleuthing, you could totally find the uh, number to some of the more elite boards just by poking around a little bit and using your, uh, you know, reading NFO files, basically. That's great. <laughs> yeah, so I, you know, to be honest, I never... I never once managed to figure that stuff out. I would always just drool over, like, you know, it would say in the NFO file for some Razor 1911, Razor 1911 WHQ uh, World Headquarters, um, 444, and then XXXX. And I think, oh, man, you know, I at least know they're from New York State, but I don't really know where. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, that was, that was an interesting thing. Uh, interesting part of the message bases was um, digging through the message bases just to find numbers to other BBSs. Oh, that's right. Oh, so I'm going to, I'm going to do one little factoid for no particular yeah. reason other than it's a cool uh, phone related thing, but uh, you mentioned uh, area codes and New York right. in particular. And so one thing that I learned about uh, area codes um, was that the number of the area code was determined basically on the number of phones or kind of the priority of the area or something like that. Um, oh. The lower your number was, the higher okay. the priority your area was. And so New York State is 212, or that's right. New York City, I guess. That was one of the highest priority ones. And they determined the priority based on how long it took you to dial that number with a rotary phone. Because 212, me. it was just like two ticks and one tick and two ticks. Right, right, So. Right. I, I kind of had that sort of mentality in mind. And then uh, when I moved to Toronto in uh, 1991 or to a suburb north yep. of Toronto and they added a new area code, uh, they I was very dismayed to learn that the area code was 905, which is about the <laughs> lowest on the totem that you could possibly get. It would take you like an hour and a half to dial that on a rotary phone. So That's, fr that's crazy. So so what did the priority, um, did did that get you something? What, what was the priority useful for? I think it was just to, to determine either the number of people in that area code or whether it was a center of commerce in, of some sort. Wow. But, uh, the, yeah, the most populous areas tended to have the numbers that were closest to zero because they took the least amount of time to dial on those old phones. That's hilarious. I did not know that. That's, that's an amazing factoid. That's, like, really into the whole telephony thing. Oh, sure, sure. I, I was. We, we will uh, certainly have an episode where we speak about uh, hacking and freaking and that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah, for sure. Because not that... too far removed from this. Exactly. I think it was called HPAV, uh, hacking, freaking, anarchy, viruses, and I think there was one more. Um, cracking and carding. Cracking and carding, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm ashamed that I can pull that off the top of my head so quickly, but that was all That was all fun stuff. Oh, I'm, re I'm uh, realizing, by the way, that this has uh, been a very uh, epic um, yeah. sojourn away from our topic of Phytonet. Right. Oh, yes. So, Phytonet. <laughs> yeah. Um. My, you know, my experience with Fidonet was almost nil, but um, to explain kind of what Fidonet was, um, this actually has a lot to do with telephony, and I think it's super, super cool. Um, 
what happened was BBSs were local to whatever di dialing prefix or area code you were in, um, meant, meaning that if you wanted to dial over to the um, a person in, living in the next state or the next province, you would have to dial long distance, which in you know in, in the early 90s, that was totally prohibitive. I mean, nowadays, no one can appreciate, unless you're from some Eastern Bloc country, how expensive it is to dial long distance. Um, so in those days, you know, it was around a dollar a minute, um, which is, you know, could, would kill you in a one hour download, you know, 60 bucks to download one, uh, one megabyte game. Um, so what would happen was people realized this guy named Tom Jennings, uh, who created FidoNet realized that you could take advantage of the fact that there were so many BBSs clustered around each other. Um, you could dial locally to one, let's say one that's two miles away, five kilometers away. Um, or three, three kilometers away. Um, and you could send them some data. If that person dialed two kilometers away from themselves, they would be also local to the next person over. And so what you do is daisy chain data and you could get across the entire continental USA locally without ever spending a penny on long distance. Mm -hmm. um, hop by hop anyway. Exactly. Hop by hop. And it was a really, really simple way to do it, but it totally took advantage of the fact that some lump, some numbers are local to each other while others are long distance. And so what he did was he effectively built um, a homebrew internet um, by um, having these BBSs dial each other and then exchange information. And as you can guess, what it was exchanging was information on the message bases. And it was an agreed upon protocol called, uh, I think it was just called Fido, um, which said, here's the information for the message. Here's the time, the, the time and date stamps on it. Um, here's the board it came from, et cetera, et cetera. And this information would slowly kind of filter out at the specific time of the day. I think it was two to 3 AM was dialing out time or something like that, where all these FidoNet BBSs would dial each other in this agreed upon, you know, um, chain of events. And after, I'm, I'm not sure how long it would take to um, disperse, but this information, you could potentially get a message from Toronto, Canada to um, um, Kyrgyzstan um, if you waited long enough. It might take several days or weeks, but it would actually get there eventually. I That's a very good description of it. I have to wonder how reliable it is in the end, because... <laughs> so yeah. I don't really know how the hierarchy or the organization really worked out. I don't know whether some BBS was voted as, like, the local hub that would agree to call either right. long distance or to call the next town over, and that all local BBSs would synchronize with that one at a certain schedule. I just don't know. I kind of think that they did have overnight schedules where they would have, like, a 10-minute window for them to That's right. upload and download. And Is that it? Yeah, exactly. There was, I, th I think there was a name for it called like the Fidonet dialing hour or something. There was just one hour in the middle of the night when all the boards would call each other. But yeah, I agree. There's got to be some real challenges with uh, synchronizing you, your message information from board to board. Mm -hmm. But I think it was I think not, so. yeah, it was not unlike um, anybody who's got kids or is involved in the education system. It's not unlike, you know, the emergency uh, fan out plans that they have. You know, your principal calls you and says, um, you know, here are three numbers. Call these three people um, in the case of an emergency at the school. And those three people call three people uh, or nine people, I guess, in their case. And it worked a lot like that. So it just fan out information and kind of sync up. Uh, but in terms of the specifics of the protocol, I actually uh, I actually don't know. I am just not sure. I'm just not sure. 
I think they might have done their own thing. I know that there were two similar services, Fidonet and DoveNet, and perhaps yes. others as well. I don't know if they used the same uh, the same protocols or if they each had their own proprietary ones or if either of them are proprietary. I just don't know. Yeah, me neither. I guess that, that'll be something. Hopefully somebody can chime in with that and kind of give us more technical explanation of how FidoNet and DoveNet work. But yeah, overall, this was a very economical way of getting information from end to end. I think it was separated into regions, North America, or at least the continental United States was one region. Um, I think Canada was split into one or two regions. And it was just a way to um, let people communicate over huge distances um, people who did not have internet access, because in those days, you know, over the internet, it was very, very simple to do that. Um, because, you know, you would connect locally and the server would negotiate a connection with something way down in California. Um, but over the BBSs, you know, dialing locally via the telephone lines was the only way to do it. So I always thought Fido was just, just cool in concept. I was never a user of the Fido Echoes. They were called Echoes. Ah, um, yes. Yeah, they were, those were like basically... Uh, news groups, the effective uh, uh, equivalent of an internet news group. Um, and Echo Mail, I believe, was the private version of it where you could actually send a, a message to a particular user at a particular uh, BBS somewhere else. Uh, I see, I see. Yeah, yeah, so that's a good description of it. And it's something that I didn't really participate in either, just because, like I mentioned before, when you speak with people in a local BBS, you have that sense of community, you kind of know who that's you're right. dealing with, and you know at least something about the sort of person that's going to be replying to you. Whereas with something like Fidonet, I think you're kind of lucky to ever hear back from that person whatsoever, right. just considering how volatile and uh, rickety the whole <laughs> the whole chain of command was. It was just a very like unmanaged web, or it seemed to be for me. Maybe it was more organized than I'm giving it credit for, but uh, it just never really struck my fancy for that reason. It just seemed a little bit too iffy. Yeah, and in my case, you know, um, I, I agree with you. and I, But I think um, on a technical end, from what I understand, Tom Jennings' protocol was very, very, um, very good at, at um, synchronizing and disseminating mails. So I don't think there was a technical issue with it. My sense was more, to be honest, when I was 13, 14 years old, I didn't really see the point of talking with anonymous people somewhere else. Um, you know, I, I didn't really, it didn't strike me as cool that I could talk with, you know, a random person over, you know, um, in Texas. Um, now I appreciate completely how cool that was. But at the time, I just think I didn't really understand the point of Fido. And I was also probably very scared of, you know, um, you know, I had enough problems talking to people on local message boards. I didn't <laughs> didn't occur to me that, you know, maybe it won't uh, it won't be so bad talking to people over long distance. But yeah, anyway, um, Fidonet's pretty cool. I just wanted to make sure we mentioned it because um, uh, as I understand it, it's still being actually fairly widely used in Eastern Europe. Isn't that insane? I heard about, I heard that too that it's still active in some some form. I don't that's just uncanny to me. It must have been like thirty years or so. Yeah, um, it's unbelievable. I was listening to a podcast. Um, the name slips in my mind right now. Uh, I think it's called the Bobby Blackwolf Show or something. Oh no no sorry. The podcast was called Carrier Whistle. Uh, Carrier Whistle was all about BBSs, and uh, I love the name. And they yeah. interviewed a guy who used to be one of the hosts of G Four TV. Um, if anybody remembers that uh, uh, TV show, um, and he did some sort of tech talk piece. This was several years ago, about five or ten years ago. And he mentioned that he was one of the administrators of Fidonet for the last 30 years. And wow. Yeah, yeah. And he's a Canadian guy. He's from Toronto. And uh, he still manages actually two BBSs. And we'll try to get the, show, the, the names of his BBSs into the show notes because I think they're yeah. still uh, telnetable. 
Um, and he talked about, yeah, what it's like being a system administrator. And he says, you know, to this day, there are plenty of uh, FidoNet nodes that exist all over Eastern Europe where he said um, the average DSL line will cost somebody a month's salary. Um, and he, so he says people are still using BBSs. They're still using dial-up over traditional copper wire phone lines um, because people in the Ukraine, for instance, can't afford dial-up. Um, that is quite something. Yeah. Gee, that's awesome. I thought it was amazing. I just thought, you know, um, FidoNet for a homebrew solution, it still does its job and, and it's still working pretty hard out there for people in, um, you know, I think parts of, uh, all over parts of Europe um, where, where internet access is at a premium. Hmm. So super cool. That's great. That's great. Very, very kind of a peer-to-peer, node-to-node uh, alternative to exactly. uh, to the main internet. That's quite something. Yeah, super cool. And like a precursor to things we'd find much later on, like BitTorrent, that kind of thing. So yeah, I dig it. Hmm. All right. There's one more aspect of message boards I wanted to uh, I wanted to mention, and uh, maybe we'll we'll start to come to a close after that. Go for it. So uh, one thing that I wanted to mention was the uh, the concept of the quick reader. I don't know if have you ever used a quick reader oh, while you were like QWK. Yes, exactly. Quick mail. I never used it. So explain to everybody and and to me what quick mail is. Okay, so I don't know where I learned about this exactly, but I think I I had just seen it referred to in the message boards and was curious about it. It ended up being an extremely convenient thing. Okay. So what a quick reader does is, you know, you're reading the message boards, and the first thing that you do when you log on to a BBS usually is it asks you, do you want to read all the new messages in the message boards? Right. And maybe you've subscribed to a few of the, or message base, I should say. Yeah. Maybe you've subscribed to a few categories, or maybe you want to see everything. Maybe you say yes, and you want to see every new message in chronological order one by one. Right. Um, um, however, um, as uh, BBS has got more and more popular, sometimes it was not convenient to do that. Maybe it would tie up your phone line for too long or it would just take more time than you wanted to dedicate in one sitting. Yeah. And so there was something you could download a quick packet, which was just a file. It was like messages.qwk or something like that. Mail.qwk. Oh, I get you would it. download this file and it was like an archive of all of those messages that were not read yet. You would download it and you would um, open that file with uh, a quick reader, QWK reader, and it would basically simulate offline the message bases of the BBS that you had called. And it would give you the opportunity to read that stuff and also to write offline replies. You're kidding and so me. maybe all you would have to do is instead of staying on a BBS and staying connected for an hour while you read everything, you would connect for literally 30 seconds, download your file and log off, freeing it up for somebody else, and then do your replies and stuff offline, then you upload your own updated quick packet to the BBS, um, and you've just been a lot more efficient with the time of the, the BBS's only phone number. I love it. I had no idea that's what quick mail was. I remember always seeing the option in many of the BBS's I connected to, they're like, download quick packet. And I'm like, I have no idea what that is. That would have saved me so much freaking time online if I had done that. Precisely why I did it. You know, by the time I learned what these things were, I was calling a whole bunch of BBS's and spending plenty of time on there. This is just a more efficient way of, of managing the time. Or, you know, if you're, you, you have, you'll download a couple of messages, uh, a couple of quick packets from a couple right. of BBSs and maybe the third one is busy. So you respond to mail while you wait for the other one to get freed up. That's awesome. So it was an interesting little evolution, quite a clever idea. Oh, that is super cool. And, and that kind of just, I don't know, it just speaks so much to, ah, there was something I love about BBSs that no one really talks about. It was all homebrew. Like people were just coming up with these awesome solutions for anything. And it was, you know, for the most part, it was open source. Most part, you could modify or add modules onto stuff. 
Um, and, you know, you weren't, you weren't required to pay money to buy, you know, for the most part, to buy these like add-ons for BBSs. It was just there and people were so free with it. And I love that. Yeah, I love that too. There were, I think, uh, well, the topic that we'll talk about next time, I guess, since we didn't get around to it this time, will be the BBS door games. And those were often uh, the only pieces of software that were had had clear benefits for registering it. Exactly. Um, yeah, but you're absolutely right. For the most part, they were just kind of modular, flexible, modifiable um, server uh, clients architectures with terrific user-friendly software and um it just so happens that the community were a bunch of computer enthusiasts who had the uh, ability to do this kind of stuff and so they really kind of forged their own tools or modified their own tools to meet the needs of their particular uh constituents so that's a it was a it was a good place to be yeah and i was a, you know I'm, I'm a big fan of that idea that you know um, keeping things out out in the open, freeware, open source, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, so that people have the ability to mod things on their own. And, you know, um, not to get too political about this, but um, one of the things I kind of really miss uh, is, you know, the internet has become corporatized in some strange way where things are locked down, things, um, you you become a user of everything rather than, you know, a creator of things. And, um, you know, that's not true for everything. But in a lot of cases, you know, I think about, um, you know, a, a product like the iPad, which is, you know, for the for most average people, very locked out as a creation tool. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, in those days, it was so it was so easy to modify a text file and, you know, affect a change in a piece of software. Um, you know, you could modify your BBS very, very easily. And I really, really miss that. So, uh, I'm really sad that we didn't get to door games this episode. We have to, we, I think we can basically spend the entire episode, um, next episode talking about door games because, um, oh man, do I have a lot to bring up? <laughs> oh yeah, me too. Okay. Let's plan on it. All right. That sounds great. So, um, is that implying we're coming to a close? I think we've been like at the, at the one and a half hour point, maybe even an hour 45. Yeah, yeah, we're just about there. I think that's probably a, a good place to cap things off. <laughs> All right. Sorry, folks, that I've made the promise that this episode would be about multiplayer modeming um, at the start. Um, next episode, I think we're probably just going to spend the whole episode talking about door games. And uh, I'm definitely going to go into a lot of detail uh, about games you may have heard of, like Solar Realms Elite, Baron Realms Elite, uh, Legend of the Red Dragon, Trade Wars 2002... Um, do you have any other games in mind? Uh, my favorite was one called Usurper. Oh, cool. I can't wait to talk about Usurper. And um, mm -hmm. that was all of these games, I, I think, have had a profound, profound effect on, on kind of the future of uh, video gaming, uh, especially as evidenced in games like EVE Online, Ultima Online. It's basically, these, some of these games are unimaginable in their modern variants without um, um, SRE, BRE, Lord, Usurper coming first. Yep, absolutely. And uh, don't hold your breath, fair listeners, but I'm going to do my very best to see whether I can set up a Telnet BBS or at least some means of uh, sharing these uh, games with you in time for the next episode. There's no, uh, no better way to talk about it than to have you participating in them yourself. So oh, that would be crossed. amazing. Yeah, that would be super cool. I know you've got some technical limitations to overcome there, but uh, that would be mind-blowing. I shall do my best. And if I don't do it, oh, I, I'm uh, before I forget then, if I am not able to figure it out, there's one uh, Telnet BBS that I uh, enjoy uh, fairly regularly. It is by uh, a fellow uh, journalist on my Twitter called Benj Edwards. That's his name. Oh, cool. Um, and he runs a Telnet BBS called The Cave. 
And so oh, that's you can a classic. Reach that. Is it? It's a it's a very good one, and it's got all the all the games that we love on there, almost all of them. So his uh, domain is cavebbs.homeip.net, and he's on uh, Telnet port twenty three. I will stick that in the show notes as well as some uh, BBS Telnet software that uh, you can get free open source software. Yeah, that's a really good point because I think most people um, you can connect with the built in terminal software that our Telnet software that your OS comes through it comes with. In the case of Mac, it's terminal. In the case of Windows, uh, what does Windows use for Telnet? Is it just Telnet? It has a command line tool called Telnet, but it's actually, I found, not installed by default. You have to add it as a Windows oh, feature. Oh, wow. so. okay. I lied. Um, yeah, there's a there's a fantastic one. I think it's called mTelnet for Windows, which is going to enable ANSI support, which you'll definitely need because these games are all in color. Uh, mTelnet is a very good one. Uh, the the people who make the SynchroNet BBS software also have one called SyncTerm, which is, I would oh, say, Syncterm's just as good. Oh, even better. Yeah. They're, they're both great. I'll uh, link to both of them in the show notes. Very cool. And if you're on uh, Mac, I believe the software, uh, a really good one is called uh, CG Term. Um, CG Term will get you connections to all sorts of different protocols. But the most important one is it'll get you onto Commodore 64 BBSs, which use a specialized character set called Petsky. So uh, we'll make wow. sure. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it, it looks really messed up if you connect to it from uh, a regular Telnet connection. So yeah, it gives you the Petsky fonts that are basically an extended ASCII set. That's great. So this I got to see. I got to look that up. <laughs> yeah, it's super cool. All right. Great. Well, Thank you so much, Brian, for, yeah, setting this all up again. Uh, absolutely love talking with you about it. Yeah, ditto, Chris. All the best. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you, listeners, for joining us. Um, you can, uh, if you have any questions or comments or you'd like to uh, uh, have a voicemail like our good friend Joe did, you're welcome to contact us at Twitter at SquareWavesFM. Uh, you can get us by email at squarefm.demodulated.com. And our website is squarefm.demodulated.com, um, where you can grab our uh, podcast and see the show notes. And um, we are also now on iTunes, Square Waves FM. So uh, look us up, subscribe to us, and by all means, get in touch. We'd love to hear your experiences uh, and uh, your stories. Fantastic. Thanks so much, everyone. Talk to you soon. All right. So long, everyone. Bye-bye.